official Queens United Chess Podcast. I'm your host, Anisha Oberoi, co-hosting with Queens United co-founder, Maggie. Hi, I'm Maggie Tsuganova, and I'm excited to be joining Anisha today. Every month, we feature a new figure within the chess community, and we're so excited that today's guest is a chess icon. Uh, today's discussion will be surrounded around her competitive chess story and pursuits beyond chess, and how players of all ages can learn from her experience and be inspired to continue their chess playing and other activities. Jennifer Shahadi won the U.S. Junior Open in 1998 and went on to become a two-time U.S. Women's Chess Champion. She organizes the U.S. Chess Women's Girls Club and hosts the Ladies' Night Chess Podcast. But she is a figure beyond the chessboard. She is a poker star whose podcast won a Global Poker Award for the best poker podcast in the world and creates art exploring themes of gender dynamics of both chess and poker. So without further ado, we'd like to introduce woman grandmaster Jennifer Shahadi. Hey guys, so glad that we're doing this. It's so wonderful to see all the work you're doing to bring chess to more girls and women. Thank you so much for taking the time and sit down and, and having this conversation with us. We appreciate your time so much. Yeah, so we wanted to start and really um, go back in time a little bit and understand how your competitive chess playing really began. So um, if you wanted to give a quick um, like overview of when you were first introduced to the game of chess, when you started playing competitively, and maybe what were some of your biggest motivations and inspirations to playing chess as you got older? I learned how to play chess when I was very young. I mean, I barely remember. I think I was five or six. And um, I got more serious about it much later. Um, I have an older brother who's really into chess, very strong player. And uh, he was kind of taking the lead in the family along with my father, who's a senior master and multiple time state champion. They were very supportive, but I would say I was kind of more tagging along to tournaments and enjoying the atmosphere a little bit. But I didn't really get passionate till chess until around high school. Um, and I think it's like my creative side really started to express itself through chess. Like I saw the beauty of chess combinations and the uh, beauty of the history of chess. And that definitely unlocked more success for me. So I had a huge rating game around that time, rating gain in like my, uh, in my maybe eight, ninth grade, 10th grade year in high school. Um, which is cool because honestly, it's actually the time that a lot of people drop out of chess, mm -hmm. especially girls. Now, I think in my case, of course, the fact that I had a family that was really good at chess helped because it's like this anchor where even if you quit, you can kind of come back in. Not everybody has that. So that's why I think organizations like Queens United, so important to give people that like kind of social structure and motivation to kind of stick with it. So I'm really happy to see you, um, you all doing this. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I know personally I can relate to, too, because I also come from a family where, you know, a lot of us do play chess and it's nice to have that sort of support there, too. But a lot of uh, female players like our friends um, don't necessarily always have that big support system or, um, you know, aren't able to necessarily make a friend within uh, the chess community. So, yeah, we're excited um, about that, too. And and I was curious if you had any uh, maybe female friends growing up within the chess community that maybe you are still in contact with um, from when you were younger. You know, honestly, when I was really young, I guess I was the only girl who played regularly at my school. I'm, I'm definitely still friends with some of the people I played back then, like my brother. And then there's also mm -hmm. 
Ben Johnson, who has the Perpetual Podcast, who mm-hmm. um, he was on our team, and like we're all very close, me, Greg, and he, and then some of the other team members as well. But um, in terms of girls that I met around that age, um, there there weren't too many. So that's why, though, in high school it was useful because in high school it was already at the age where like being friends with boys and girls kind of all made sense. Whereas mm-hmm. I do think there's a sweet spot earlier than that that is really important to girls to have other friends like probably around the ages of like uh seven to 12 Mm -hmm. so um yeah if you're a lot of girls drop out of that age i think because their other friends drop out of chess as well Mm -hmm. so yeah that can be um very difficult indeed so correct me if i'm wrong you were 16 years old when your national when you earned your national master title What obstacles or setbacks did you face when trying to achieve this goal? Hmm. Well, I actually got my title pretty early. I mean, I think I was actually just about to turn 16. Maybe the rating was like um, implemented at 16. I think it was right around my birthday, actually. I'm born in December 31st. So it's like, (laughs) you remember the calendar year. And there was something called the Insanity Tournament, where you play chess games all night. And, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that teenagers, their brains operate better than um, other ages at like 11 p.m. to like 3 a.m. Not gonna say that they they operate better than than teenagers for every other hour, but better than comparatively better. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's some interesting theories about why that is. But this research is becoming more relevant because there's a lot of pushback on making like the start times at school super early. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be really bad for like the teenage brain. How do you all feel about that? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I personally prefer like later start times. I think that's helpful to get that extra sleep in to make sure to feel energized for the school day. But but then you also have your activities right after school. So it's kind of like a balance. It's tricky. And I mean, I think the the, the point is that generally most teenagers are like night people, night owls. And then like, I think later in life, you find out who the real night owls are (laughs) because um, it it does change quite a bit. So yeah, that anyway, that tournament was perfect for me, you know, because of course I, I gained the master title and I probably wasn't even master level at that point, because again, I had like that advantage of being so keen and um, you know, it's everything worked out. And th- what was harder actually was dipping below a master after that. Cause that's the thing about chess that doesn't happen in a lot of other sports or games that you actually lose your titles in a way. Like, yeah, you can say you're still a national master, but if you're under 2200, like people don't really feel like you're a master player anymore. So I, uh, yeah, I had to get back up there. And I remember I really had to do some work on like the weaknesses of my game, like the end game. I remember reading an end game book or two, trying to memorize some basic end game positions and reading like a Dovoretsky or Sharashevsky book. And uh, yeah, it definitely helped in that. The next time I made it over 2200, I think I stuck around there. Once you faced that setback, what motivated you to keep going and like continue that that preparation to get past that master level again? Well, I definitely remember being obsessed with ratings at the non. You know, I was very. I think part of it was just practical because I wanted to qualify for different championships. So chess was like my ticket to see the world. Uh, all these different trips that you can go on for playing for the World Youth Championships. I would I would travel to those places, and at the time. Um, really only one person went in each age category. So I, you had to be the number one. And there was always Irina Crush was, was always higher rated than me, but she's a couple years younger than me. 
So usually I wasn't competing directly with her for the spot. Um, so I really wanted to kind of keep my position so that I could play in a few of those. Like I remember I went to Spain, I went to Armenia and I met people from all over the world. And the other cool thing about these events was that for some reason I was very popular at them, which was not really normal for me. Like I remember when I went, when I, I went to college really early, I was only 17 when I went to college. So I was like a year younger than most people. And I didn't have a lot of friends. But for some reason, when I went to like the World Youth Championship or the World Junior Championship, I was like the most popular person there. Like I was friends with people from every team and I was like organizing where people were going to go to like parties and stuff. So it was like a very big confidence boost for me, like socially as well, that uh, there was this world in which I could thrive. And I think it just goes to show, you know, you mentioned in my intro that I'm a poker player, that sometimes there's a great deal of luck in whether or not you end up making friends quickly in certain environments. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something also that's kind of like a cascade effect that, that is very, very relevant to girls in chess. Like meeting like your first friend is always the hardest. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times when you meet like one friend, you meet like all their friends. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you have you go from having like zero friends to having 10, right? Uh, and I think in my college life, I was just like, I wasn't clicking with that one person. And therefore I really like, that was hard for me. Um, and whereas chess, I was, uh, finding these like amazing social networks, which is not only great because it's fun, but also it's great because generally I think that it helps your game, you know, when you have friends who you can like talk about the different openings with and kind of like bond with over different games and stuff. It's, it's very cool. So that sense of community is definitely like as important as just knowing the game. Oh yeah, so, the community is so important. I think for girls and boys, by the way, because mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes people like I talk about that a lot, and sometimes sometimes people think it like sounds a little sexist, like I'm saying that like girls are only in chess for like social. But I'll tell you, even like when you go to the uh, Singfield Cup or something, you'll see the guys, the best players in the world, like going pl playing bug house and bullet chess after the games. Like this is something that attracts a lot of people to chess because the game itself is so solitary. But then after the game, this community atmosphere is very um, important balance, I think. You know, if you don't have that, it can be very lonely. So in 1998, you became the first woman to win the U.S. Junior Open, which is so admirable. And at the time, you were still just a teenager around 18 years old. So how did you find a balance between school and chess? And like you mentioned, you even started college at 17 before others. So even then, like with like the higher study, how did you find yourself balancing the two? And did you find yourself prioritizing one over the other? Um, you know, I was kind of lucky because I went to NYU and there was a big chess scene in New York. And also I was able to um, teach chess um, on like the weekends and like after school for a higher hourly rate that I would get for doing other types of things. Cause I was already a chess master. So, um, that was nice. And then I basically took the entire summer off to play chess and in college, the summers are so long. So we're talking like May to September. Right. So it felt like it was definitely a reasonable balance. And then I would, I took one semester off to play in the Olympiad in Istanbul, Turkey and to play in the world championship in India. So taking that semester off was really helpful. And other than that, I th think that my ability to work at like chess camps and after schools and then take most of the summer off for chess uh, really helped. Was it hard to catch up with schoolwork or like did your professors understand like your need to go play chess or how did that work? 
it wasn't that hard. It was harder in honestly, uh, high school. I found it more difficult in high school because I don't know, I guess there was more work in some ways in college. I, the biggest challenge I had is that I went to a public school with very large classes and it's funny to think now because I mean, writing is like such a huge passion of mine, but my writing skills were a little lacking, especially in terms of like writing, like formal papers. So I had to catch up on that. But once I kind of understood like the formula, I was able to, um, you know, dive in. I mean, you know, it's like a, it's like a few months of classes and then, you know, I got to play chess again. So it didn't really feel to me, it didn't really feel like it was that arduous, especially because I really enjoy the subjects. I studied like literature and art and feminism. Um, I really felt like everything was also connecting back to my passion for chess in some way. Like, you know, with, when I'm thinking about writing chess queens and like the loneliness of being a feminist in the chess world at the time, like my work in school was kind of connecting to that. And then there was also um, art with chess is definitely an art. And, you know, I learned about like Marcel Duchamp in my classes and he was a chess master who was also like, the, I mean, I would say one of the most influential artists, but some, some would just say he's the most influential mm -hmm. artist of contemporary times. So of contemporary art. Uh, and so, yeah, it felt very organic, really. Yeah. So a lot of our um, ambassadors and like instructors within Queens United are in high school and are going to be transitioning to college within the next few years. So I was curious, like kind of touching back on your balance um, between like your NYU studies and your chess playing, if you had any advice you um, like you have for high school students like ourselves um, to balance chess and other activities um, and to still find enjoyment in everything um, in all of your studies. I think that, you know, college really sharpens your brain because you meet so many intelligent people. So I think just leaning into that. And I know there's a lot of people who say you should do a little bit of chess every day so they don't get rusty. That's probably true. But also, I think this kind of idea of like just diving in when it's your time to dive in is also very powerful. So knowing that, like, even if you put it on the back burner because you have like exams, like you have like an intense and, um, you know, trying to avoid the mentality of clicking things off. Right. Because if you're doing chess just because you want to click it off, that's not how chess works, right? It's not like somebody says like, oh, you studied your tactics and you studied your opening, so you're going to win these games. No, it's not really like that. You need to do something that uh, other people aren't doing. You need to have the flow. You need to have the, the be in the zone and get into the zone and be confident. So it's hard to create a checklist for that. So I think like avoiding the checklist mentality and um th like that's super helpful and i don't know i i mentioned earlier that i was I, I had a very thriving social scene in my chess world and then also i eventually moved to brooklyn and i met a lot of friends there but maybe the fact that now that i'm looking back on it maybe the fact that i i went to nyu and i didn't have a lot of friends at nyu and a lot of a lot of so really it was like i was doing my schoolwork and then studying chess and like kind of like partying when i went to chess tournaments whereas i think a lot of people's college experience is very different that balancing the social and the academic and then adding chess to it was actually three things, right? Whereas for me, it was kind of like balancing two things because I I was like, I don't know why, but maybe also because of my age, I was 17 and NYU isn't like a college campus type, traditional college campus. So it what for some reason, like I said, just maybe luck of the draw, I did not make a lot of friends, which in a way gave me a lot of time for chess. So 
you have won two US, two U.S. chess women championships and have even competed in the chess Olympiad. What is your favorite memory from competing in these tournaments? Um, definitely winning my first championship title. That was so great. I mean, I wasn't even the highest rated player in any of the championships that I won. So really feeling like I was shooting above the rim was uh, a great feeling, everything kind of coming together. And I... Also got an I am Norm in my first U.S. championship victory. So that was very sweet. Oh, and I, by the way, I feel like friends are the most important thing about college. Like make, making connections and friends is so important in chess and poker for your career. So don't use mine as a model. I'm just saying like it's maybe that's why it was easier for me to balance than some people. Because I, I had like a, a, few, a little bit less going on than I think people who go to like a, a college campus where it's like partying all the time. Right. Yeah, I think definitely like for anything you do, having that sense of community and anything just like makes yeah. you want to keep doing it. Or yeah, also just the people that you meet in chess and in college. And uh, they're so important for later in life because those are the people that uh, you might um, work with on different like really big projects. And so I, I, do, I do think it's like really important to like expand your network, especially depending on like what you want to do with your life, you know, but yeah. certainly the fields that I went into, like, you know, um, creative stuff, it's really important to have a great network. So I also want to talk a little bit about attaining your woman grandmaster title, because that's just phenomenal. What efforts did you put into achieving this goal? You know, I didn't really think about the Women's Grandmaster title so much because um, there was a lot of debate about it for my whole life. You know, like I was very excited to win the U.S. Women's Championship titles and I love to see my rating increase. But I feel like there's a lot of negativity associated with the Women's Grandmaster title because even when I was playing seriously, there were already like, I don't know, eight, ten women who had the regular Grandmaster title. So I was constantly getting asked by people like, why is there a Women's Grandmaster title? And it was really nice for me because I got free U.S. chess membership for life. And I got some free entry fees and like free lodging. Um, but I actually remember feeling really ambivalent about it. And it's very unfortunate because honestly, it's a hard title to get. And there's a lot of women in the world who experience all sorts of like sexism and barriers. And so to have this like negativity associated with it is very unfortunate. I think it should go and that it should be like merged with... Um, some gender neutral title. I write that in my book, Chess Queens. Like right now, I think we should have WGM and like maybe, I don't know, something, maybe it should merge with the I am title. Mm-hmm. So that, because people are just constantly making fun of it. Whenever you turn on a Twitch stream, like all they do is make fun of women's titles. It's mm-hmm. out, it's completely out of control. And, um, you know, my husband who doesn't play chess was mentioning it the other day that he was on Twitter and, you know, mentioned somebody as like a women's grandmaster and like, there was no comments about anything except the fact that the title was Women's Grandmaster. Like there was no comments about how accomplished she was or the event she was doing, just like the entire thing. And yeah, that, that's, there's a word for that. It's called sea lioning where people like pretend that they care about like the Women's Grandmaster title and like how it's condescending, but really they just want to hate on women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can't stand it. It's just like, it's got to stop. I think that like takes away like the hard work and like, mm-hmm. like how like someone has put like their entire life into like maybe this goal and like, it's like they're taking away the value or at least trying to take away the value of it by making fun of it, like you said, which I think definitely is like an issue. It totally. And I, I think also that um, it is a bit confusing. That's a problem. Like that's what successful trolls do. 
they take something that there's like a kernel of truth in, because it is true that the women's grandmaster title is a bit confusing, and then they explode it and make it seem like it's the only thing and use it to like as a device to be misogynistic. So yeah, you if you look, that's the thing. If you look, if you see this, you'll see this pattern kind of like recur in other ways. Um, so it's 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 useful to to observe it. But my solution of merging it with a gender neutral title, I think is really good because that way people shut up because mostly nobody has the international master title, right? So how are they gonna like hate on that, right? But I think that's like why you're so admirable because you've created an environment where girls and like women feel like empowered in chess and they don't like you like kind of like outweigh the haters, if that makes sense. Like you battle them and you've created an environment where like me and Maggie and so many other um, girls feel like safe playing chess. So thank you. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. That's so sweet. I love hearing it. Yes. And you are so multi-talented and, like I said, contribute it contribute in so many different ways to both the chess and poker community, all while being a mom. So how do you find the balance between your personal and work life? Um, wow, yeah, it's pretty tough. But I do work <laughs> a lot. I work a lot at night, so that way I can, um, you know, squeeze in a lot of time with my family and my beautiful son and then when I work, when I go, when I go away and travel, I work a lot. So that's, that's another thing. Like I play poker, but then like, if I, if I get eliminated from a tournament, you know, I'll like go back and, and work. So yeah, it is difficult, but luckily I enjoy what I do. So it's usually not too big of a push for me to like get back on whatever I'm working on. Yeah. Cause you know, if you're enjoying your work, then it doesn't feel like work at all. So I feel like that's definitely true. Something that I did recently learn about, which I thought was really fascinating and I didn't know, was that you actually like collaborate with your husband on creating art pieces. So was creating art something that you've always known you wanted to do or did it come about later in your career? That's a great question. You know, I think like I studied art in NYU and some of my friends, like both from high school and also from like New York were artists. And I, I mentioned Duchamp earlier. And, you know, it's it's ironic because when I was in high school, I got mostly A's, but the one subject I remember getting a C in was art because I was never very good at drawing or painting. And to be honest, I probably should have just tried more. I feel like a lot of it's like chess. Like people say like, oh, I'm not good at this. I'll never be good at it. It's, that's BS. I probably wasn't good when I was like in second grade and then I just gave up. And, you know, once you mark yourself as not good at something, then you're going to be right about that. Right. So it's dangerous to say that. But okay, I got like a C in art because I couldn't draw very well. Right. And I thought I was bad at art. But then later I learned about Duchamp and he thought that chess was an art. Right. And I see these chess problems that people create from scratch. Well, that's obviously art. You can feel it in your heart and your soul. And then um, I, you know, I ended up dating a filmmaker and uh, now I'm married to him. But um, we, we did projects and I think that actually what clicked sometimes is that I'm a writer and sometimes I realized there was an idea I wanted to express and that it wasn't really good to express it in writing. Like somehow words weren't really good for it. Like you needed some kind of visual medium and that's where, you know, some of these projects came about. Like a great example would be hula chess. It's like I can talk or write an essay about how I feel like chess is like a fusion of like masculine and feminine elements and, you know, circles and lines. And I can talk about how chess uh, is, you know, so visual in your brain, but 
if you're just looking at it, doesn't look like anything's happening. I can talk about that, but mm -hmm. it's much more beautiful to have a video with like two women playing chess and hula hooping at the same time, mm -hmm. because like that says all that in a visual way, right? And so just like realizing that there are some things that you can't say and that you just need something to express it with, I think unlocked for me that I'm an artist um, and yeah, it's pretty special. And I think chess, chess, I think is a good teacher of that also, because I think everyone who kind of like sees something new in a position and fresh in a position and feels like they're creating it themselves understands that kind of artistic feeling. So what stories do you want to share through your art? When, um, like the other piece that I feel is very powerful that we made a couple of years ago is called Not Particularly Beautiful. And this one refers to um, a misogynistic chessboard from like hundreds of years ago, which was um, basically talking about how the queen is, um, you know, too powerful because in 1500, she became, went from being the weakest piece to the strongest piece. And a lot of people were angry about that. They were like, why should the woman be like the strongest piece in the board? Like, this is crazy. This is like an insane game. It's too fast. The woman's too powerful. So there was one particular chessboard that had like an insult on every square for the chess queen. And so um, my husband and I, we recreated this um, modern day version where we found like YouTube and Twitter and Twitch troll trolling comments for like every square on the board about women chess champions or commentators. And yeah, I think like that combination of historical precedent with like the, the visual impact um, is very powerful. And again, that's something that I could just like list and get that same impact on. I think that's, that's amazing being able to like what you can't say in words display through art. I think that's incredible. So we also know that you are an extremely accomplished poker player and you've, you're even a mind sports ambassador at poker stars. In what ways, if any, did your love for chess lead into your love for poker? Well, I think I, it was that community idea. Like, I think that chess was like an amazing community, but uh, after many years in it, I kind of wanted to break out and like meet new people. And I think that poker has like that kind of similar thought that like if you and I both play, play poker seriously, even if we're from different cultures, different age, I just met you. We kind of like have this kind of common language. And so that aspect of poker really appealed to me that it was like this community um, and very glamorous um, opportunity to like make money. Um, there was a lot of things that really were appealing about it and uh, just more social than chess. But uh, yeah, I think now I really feel like poker is a great vehicle for people to understand themselves better, especially the relationships with money. Like in chess, it's a beautiful game and you can like work kind of outside the system, you know, kind of just like lose yourself in this game and not think about anything outside of it. Whereas poker is like really a corollary for life in a lot of ways, because you have to negotiate, you have to um, look at your weaknesses, look at your relationship with money, um, look at your desires financially and like career wise. And I think you really see all that in the game of poker. So it's a, a really great package of life lessons. Um, the bad thing about poker is, of course, like there's uh, potential gambling issues with it for some people. I never had those. I don't like gambling. I don't see poker as gambling. I never did. In fact, if anything, I'm on like the other side of it where I was always like really nervous to put too much money into poker. 
Um, I was always what we call conservative with my mm -hmm. background. Mm -hmm. And that's an example of uh, something that a lot of women do in their financial planning as well. And it can actually be bad. I mean, mostly it's a good thing to be conservative financially, right? But obviously you can go too far with that and like, you know, think of somebody who like puts all their money under their mattress or in a savings account and then realizes that because of inflation, they actually lost a ton of money, right? Especially in like the last two years. So that that I think that's like an example of the types of lessons you learn in poker, where if you're just like sitting there and being conservative, it seems smart, but eventually you're going to lose a lot of money because you're just going to be eaten away by time, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like uh, like your poker playing has also evolved like over time, like like with more experience, with more um, like tournaments and games that you've played. I was curious if you've seen maybe your like chess playing or like both poker playing um, evolve within different like periods um, or like transitions that you've had in your life. Um, yeah, and definitely. Huh. Yeah, for sure. I feel like chess. Um both i think i had like competence issues which is something i hear about again and again with women because we always have these special guests for our like zooms and we've had dozens and dozens of special guests from Judith polgar to gary kasparov those are obviously the goats but we've had Irina crush we've had carolina blanco we've had sabrina chavans we've had fiona mutesi um you know pia cramley we've had all of these people and like the botez sisters have come the number one question we get that recurs a lot is what do I do if I feel bad about a game that I lost? What, what about imposter syndrome? What about like not feeling confident? How do you like over and over we get this question like phrased differently. So, you know, that tells you a lot. And I think probably boys have that question too. Maybe they're afraid to ask it as much as girls, but uh, yeah, that's, this is a really big question. Yeah, but I think losing their confidence when they lose a game, when they play badly, they lose their confidence. Yeah, I think being like in the right headspace, like having like the right amount of confidence, like within a game, not being too overconfident, not being too like underconfident um, is really important in chess because, you know, one small like mistake, like one small move can be like the big deciding factor in a game. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think it's true for poker, too. And at the beginning, you might have a lot of people who are overconfident. But I think as people become intermediate or advanced, underconfidence is much, much more common problem. Mm. Yeah. Because the and people who are overconfident, they basically, basically usually get weeded out because it's not really, it doesn't really fit, right? Like you can't be overconfident and then just like lose and be able to like, uh, there's like a cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas people who are underconfident, they usually work on their game and they get better. But that kind of like psychological issue remains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like when you play chess, do you have any like maybe like tips or habits you do? Like if you realize that like, you are in a negative headspace or like where you try to like get back to um, like in the zone, like getting ready for a chess match? Yeah. You got to banish the negative self-talk. I mean, especially during the game and before the game, you know, I think corny things like I'm usually not that big on like on like all this like um, stuff that you know, nutrition and meditation, like it's really useful, but sometimes it sounds, it sounds like people are using it as a catch all and you have to do that in addition to other stuff. And it's also very personal. It really depends on the person. Um, but I do believe like in the power of sleep. So I feel like people really have to analyze their own sleep patterns and make sure they're getting enough. And then I also believe in um, hyping yourself up before a game, 
not being around negative people, not allowing yourself to have any negative self-talk. Um, and, you know, maybe reminding yourself of some great games that you've uh, played is pretty important. So like focusing on the past wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this conversation is also really relevant, like right now with the World uh, Chess Championship going on right now between uh, Ding Ren and Nepo. Um, because there have been like some talk about like Ding maybe not being in the right emotional headspace or and that may be affecting like the way the games are turning out. Um, and that's just always interesting to learn about like what different like methods or what like different players have to do, like what they have to be, what they have to prepare um, in order to be like ready for a match and how they prepare themselves to do that. Yeah, it's very relatable, you know, Ding Laurent speaking about these things. I think it's really nice. To, it's really cool to see. Yeah, and it's interesting to see like the parallels between like being prepared like men like mentally psychologically for a chess for a chess match which you know arguably is a sport but also like another higher level sports like we've heard about like the simone biles case and yeah um like in swimming like with michael phelps and then like all of those other cases so it's just interesting to see how um and just how important it is to have these conversations and to make sure that you know in order to perform at like the high level at the level you want to perform um, you know, it's not only enough to be, you know, physically like ready, like to have your chest training uh, ready. It's also important to, you know, take care of yourself to uh, be in the right frame of mind to to make good chest moves. Um, exactly. Yeah. Mental game is so important. That's what we call it. And, you know, when I was younger, it was always like psychology. But now we call it mental mm -hmm. game, which I think is all is. Yeah, maybe it's more uh, more descriptive, I'd say. Yeah. And targeting um, female chess players a little bit more, you did kind of highlight stories of several female competitive chess players in your recently published third book, Chess Queens. And you also loop in your own stories. And do you have a fav favorite figure you looked up to when you were younger playing chess or now? Yeah, definitely Judith Polgar was, and all the Polgar sisters, really. I thought it was so cool because this idea of like three sisters and they could all they be, could be friends and they were crushing everyone. It was just like mm -hmm. the fact that it was three of them, I think, made it even more exciting to follow. Um, I love watching their games. And then, of course, Yuta Polgar, when she started playing in the top tournaments in the world, it was like so exciting to like follow mm -hmm. them, even though in those days you didn't have like the live broadcast elements that you do today. Um, it's frequently like some, I can't even remember when they started, but definitely a lot of it was like looking it up in like magazines or websites, like mm -hmm. after the fact, um, that was like really inspiring for sure. And it, you know, it was helpful because it did change the conversation. Like I think when Judith was playing at the highest level, it did really shut some people up who said that women weren't as good as men at chess. Cause she was like a powerful, um, example of, being good enough, you know, with the right training and with the right upbringing. Yeah. And do you share um, like these stories or you try to share some of these role models um, and their stories to Fabi, uh, your son, who actually oh, yeah. did one of his first chess nationals? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He likes you to Polgar a lot, actually. One of the, uh, when we were, at, we were at the nationals, um, the high school nationals, actually. And uh, he was helping out there with the girls club room and just kind of being present um, because I like this is DC. It's a cool city, of course. So they were exploring DC and they was also helping out a little bit with the chess. And um, he was like, mommy, I saw you to Polgar in the elevator. <laughs> and he said, April fool. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it was April 1st. Aww. So I knew that that would be, that would be a good one. Um, yeah. He likes playing. 
He like he asked me a lot of questions about Udit. He asks me what would happen if Udit and Magnus played, <laughs> and I say, well, the last time they played, Udit won. Was that that game in Madrid? Yeah, yeah. Bar? Yeah. yeah, I have to actually show him that game. I don't. I think I just talk about the game. I don't think I showed it to him yet. But yeah, he, he loves hearing about that. So to wrap up the podcast, we wanted to know what your advice would be to all the young female chess players looking for a more inclusive environment in a male-dominated game. Wow. Well, I think to to teach your friends um, is wonderful thing that like you you all are doing with Queens United, kind of uniting as the name shows different women from a different areas and different schools. I think that's so powerful. So if they want to help bring it forward. That is fantastic. And if they want to keep motivating themselves, um, find a community that um, pushes you up because it's so important. I think as women in the game. We're too often told that we're not good enough. So you really want to err on the side of having people gas you up, you know, so whether it's your friends or your coaches, like coaching, um, you want to feel good after your coaching session, you know, like, of course they need to challenge you, but you don't want to feel like, you know, you, you're, you're bad at chess because everything was over your head. So trying to find that coach and that community that makes you feel powerful, I think is super important. Yeah. And then obviously don't stand for, um, you know, BS and uh, to uh, call it out when you see it and to surround yourself with men who call things out or boys, if you're younger, call, surround yourself with boys and men who also call things out when they see them. Mm -hmm. We are so grateful for all you have done and continue to do for the chess community. You have paved the way for so many female chess players and have created such an inclusive environment for girls in chess on top of your numerous other accomplishments. Thank you so much for your time and having this conversation with us. Thank you so much for having me, Maggie and Anisha. It was really great and your questions were very well prepared, so I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. And to all our listeners out there, I hope today you were able to learn more about the incredible Jennifer Shahadi and make sure to check out the U.S. Chess Women's Girls Club initiatives, as well as her podcast, Ladies Night Chess on Spotify, which are going to be linked in the description box below. That is all we have for you today, though. This has been Anisha Oberoi and Maggie Tsiganova. And thanks for, for tuning in. in. <laughs>